three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put um, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 10. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about just about everything, ranging from psychology to sociology to anthropology, all the ologies, to nutrition and fitness and more. This week, we're going to be discussing some incredibly thought-provoking topics, including the science of FOMO. Why do we really think we're missing out, and are we? Caffeine, how it's essential to a healthy life and why you literally cannot get enough of it. Politics, should you really care what's happening every day in Washington, D.C.? And what's the bare minimum that you can do to get involved? And finally, small talk, why it's the most important skill that you can possibly have. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. So I am... Very excited that we are in the 10th episode of Nervous Habits. We've come this far without, you know, getting canceled or running out of steam. And um, seriously, you know, when I started this uh, just a couple months ago, I I didn't expect um, to be, you know, to have this much momentum and uh, excitement both on my end and, um, you know, on behalf of the listeners as well. So I just want to say I really deeply appreciate all of your support and, you know, thank you so much for listening and, and for, um, you know, sending your, your messages in and, and for your feedback and, uh, all that great stuff. Um, have lots and lots of episodes planned for the future. So I'd like to think the best is yet to come. Um, Keep sending those emails in to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Instagram if you haven't already, at nervoushabitspodcast. I listened back to episode nine, the episode from last week I did with um, Jeremy uh, Pactor on um, free will, fate, uh, and time, and living the best life. And I noticed, I thought it was, uh, you know, it was a really great dialogue we had, but I noticed that I I talked a little bit fast. Um, I, I kind of listened to it back. And the segment that I did on fate and religion with Jeremy, I kind of felt like listening to it. I, you know, I was kind of biting my lip, like telling myself to slow down, slow down, slow down. Um, so I know that I'm a, a pretty quick talker, you know, because when I get excited excuse me, about something and energized, I'm, I'm able to, you know, just, just speed up. But I think... Going forward, you know, as, as I kind of reflect back on the first 10 episodes and, you know, looking forward to the next 10, I think I'm going to be more mindful about my talking pace because, you know, obviously I don't want there to be dead air. If you guys are listening, just, you know, silence. Isn't that eerie? Just like <laughs> like 10 seconds a set, like... I don't want that. But on the other hand, if I'm talking like this, I'm going really fast. I'm trying to talk about complex topics and you're not going to be able to get it. It's like, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, especially when the topics are, you know, things that I really want you to absorb and reflect on. And you need time to do that. You know, if I, if I ask a, a challenging question, it was even like during the, um, the discussion about incompatibilities between, um, having an all powerful, all knowing God that knows every action we make before we do it and our own free will. I had you ponder that incompatibility, but before I could even give you a chance to think about it, it's a very complex topic, I was jumping into something else. So just kind of, I guess, constructive criticism for myself. Um, the first, you know, couple, like 10 episodes, I, I do want to be more mindful of that. But again, you know, thanks so much for the support and really, really pumped to keep moving forward. So I want to start off our conversation tonight, guys, by talking about FOMO. So FOMO is an acronym um, that stands for the fear of missing out. And I think that every single person listening can relate to FOMO. You know, maybe, maybe you experienced this sensation, but you didn't know what it was called. But let's say it's a Saturday night and all your friends are out at a bar or, you know, a party and they're having fun. You know, you're stuck inside. You're either, 
you know, uh, studying or, or maybe you're, you're working or, or, you know, if you're young, maybe your parents won't let you out, whatever the case may be. And you look at your phone and your friends are sending you Snapchats and photos of them out. Or you go on Instagram and there's, you know, pictures on, on their story of, of all your friends having a great time without you. And you're kind of stuck at home by yourself. You, you feel left out. You feel lonely. You feel ostracized. But more than anything else, you feel like you're missing out on an experience. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to articulate the sensation that you're left with, but it's, it's very much like all you want is to be part of that dynamic and, you know, and included on the inside jokes and the experience and the memories. And, you know, you kind of begin thinking about the future, right? Like, you know, a week or two from now, everyone's going to be talking about that one night and, you know, you're going to be the only one kind of outside of the, um, outside of the group. So it's a very real sensation, particularly among young people. And even if we didn't know what it was called, because FOMO, the language of FOMO is relatively new. Um, so, so I did some research. It was coined by a guy named Patrick McGinnis and made popular in 2004. So it's, it's relatively new um, when he published an op-ed in the magazine for the Harvard, Harvard Business Journal, uh, excuse me, Harvard Business School um, magazine. And he refer, referred to FOMO, fear of missing out, and he also referred to uh, FOBO, fear of a better option, which is another interesting one, and how both of those things um, you know, interact with factors in a school setting. Another you know, pretty telling illustration of what FOMO is um, can be seen on the show How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother is, is one of my favorite comedies. Um, and if I, have, if I haven't referenced it yet, uh, I'm definitely going to do so um, a lot more, especially as we talk about dating. But there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it was called like The Curse of the Blitz. And basically this character, this, this big uh, heavy set guy, I think he, he was the same guy who played Jack on Lost. He was the, the, the fat guy with the long hair. Anyways, so the character on How I Met Your Mother um, is nicknamed The Blitz. Because whenever he leaves, something incredible happens. So let's say, you know, the, the five main characters are hanging out at McLaren's. They're drinking. And, and the Blitz, you know, is sitting with them. As soon as the Blitz gets up, you know that, you know, something incredible is going to happen. It, like at one point, there was a, a coin toss that just defied the laws of physics. Um, and then as soon as the, the Blitz comes back, he just says, Oh, man, I missed it again. Um, and... You know, that, that's kind of a, a, a fictionalized account of it, but that's really what it feels like to be on the other end of FOMO. And thanks to social media, you know, FOMO is as uh, powerful as ever before. And the contrast between FOMO now and FOMO, say, 25 years ago, is it's telling. You know, years ago in, in the 90s, if there was a party, same example that I gave earlier on, there's a party and you're stuck at home or you're stuck babysitting or dog sitting or, or, or whatever, and you weren't there, you know, you wouldn't have any physical indication of what you were missing. Yeah, you know, your, your imagination might run wild. You might, you know, kind of uh, think about, you know, how much fun everyone was having. And, but you're not able to know that for a fact. And you're also not able to know that in real time. Maybe a week later, your friends will get together and regale you with tales of what you missed or photos on a digital camera. But still, you, you, you know, that's after time has passed, right? Today, as I said in the opener, you're inundated with snaps and photos and texts and videos in real time of what you're missing out on. You know, if you have a cell phone, which most people do, it makes you susceptible and vulnerable to being attacked by these manifestations that lead to FOMO. And for that reason, you know, social media addiction and hypervigilance of social media is strongly correlated with FOMO. And when I say FOMO, I don't just mean a fear of missing out. I mean the, the psychological maladies that come with that. You know, fear of missing out makes you feel anxious, makes you feel lonely, makes you feel depressed. You know, makes fear of missing out can be a risk factor for some of the 
you know, mental illnesses that we spoke about back in episode seven. So, you know, the question is, is there a physiological or a scientific basis to this? Is this real or is it something that we've kind of manufactured in our heads? Because in, in science and in psychology, one of the golden rules is correlation does not equal causation. So that basically means just because two things are related does not mean one causes the other. You know, um, if, if, if everyone who eats ice cream um, drives recklessly in the car is a reckless driver, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, eating ice cream makes you an unsafe driver. Um, there could be another factor which, you know, which causes both of those things. Maybe people who eat ice cream are addicted to drugs, which makes them unsafe drivers. It's a poor, it's a poor example, guys. But the point is, just because two things are related does not mean that one causes the next. So, you know, I, I did kind of take a look at the literature to get a sense of whether or not there is a scientific basis behind FOMO. So there was a study done recently by scientists at uh, McGill University um, and Carleton University. Uh, or, or excuse me, I think it was Carleton and McGill University. And they wanted to see if this this phenomenon of FOMO was real um, and how it affected the stress and emotionality of first-year university students. Um, and they kind of predicted going into it that if students experienced this FOMO, they'd be likely to miss out on sleep um, and experience more fatigue as well as those uh, negative um, psychological symptoms. So essentially they had these students complete um, a diary for seven days and they would receive a link on their smartphones to a survey asking them about their experiences. Um, and then at the end of the semester, they do uh, an online questionnaire focusing on their well-being um, and life satisfaction. So what these scientists found right off the bat is the students were reporting feelings of FOMO um, mostly later in the day and near the end of the week. Again, not a surprise. Weekends are, are you know more conducive to FOMO. Um, they also found that students who had competing obligations like working or um, you know, uh, students who were very invested in their academia were more likely to report greater FOMO. Again, not a surprise considering FOMO is generally linked to, um, you know, social experiences that detriment missing out on. And these students were also most likely to have negative outcomes like fatigue, st uh, stress, sleep problems, and psychosomatic symptoms. Um, and what was interesting for me in, you know, reading the results of this is FOMO was not predicted by extroversion, which means students who were introverts, who didn't really like to socialize, who were shy, were just as likely to experience FOMO as people who were outgoing or, you know, enjoy being in the company of others. So it's independent of temperament. Everyone is equally susceptible to it. Um, so, you know, these scientists did a follow-up study. They wanted to see you know, how does social media play into this? Is, you know, is it linked to, as I mentioned earlier, social media addiction? Um, and, you know, what they found um, was FOMO not only created negative emotions, um, but, you know, led to feelings of distraction for, um, for some of these students. And, you know, depending on how the student was engaging with the the social media, there was a level of um, FOMO that um, that was produced, and none of this should come as a surprise. But in in academia, in the sciences, you know, they, a lot of people are, are beginning to treat this more seriously, and essentially, you know, I mentioned back in episode two. The, the crux of social media, the pitfall is we're always comparing ourselves to what we're doing. And again, I want to emphasize the real-time component. With Snapchat and Instagram, it used to be back with Facebook and MySpace that you can post a picture of yourself, you know, and it would linger on the internet. You can post it on Monday showing what you did over the weekend. You can post it, you know, a month later of a, you know, post it in September of a picture of you at the beach in, in August or, or July. But now what you have is you have real-time sharing of 
um, photos. So you have people posting on a Snapchat story. If folks are, you know, aren't familiar, Snapchat, uh, Snapchat story is, you know, at five o'clock PM sending a picture from, you know, four fifty nine PM of you, um, out at dinner with your friends or same thing on your Instagram story on Saturday night at 11:30 PM, you're at the bar and you're sending, you know, a video of you with your friends taking shots. Um, so because of that, it really, you know, leads to an exacerbation of this comparison of, you know, what is, you know, what are my friends doing on um, Saturday at 11 o'clock p.m. or, you know, or Tuesday night? And then you begin kind of either externally trying to match them, which is posting your own video or photo of what you're doing to try to equal them, or internally kind of feeling shame, kind of feeling inad, you know, inadequacy. Especially a lot of this is true on the weekends. You know, I'm sure people can relate if all of your friends are posting on social media that they're going out and, you know, doing something fun and social or going to a party and you're just kind of sitting home, even if you're tired, even if you just want to sit at home and, and be lethargic and watch Netflix, you kind of feel that inadequacy and you feel that FOMO. You feel like you're missing something. You feel like you're lesser than they are because of the, um, you know, the juxtaposition of your experiences on social media. So with all this in mind, you know, how do we manage FOMO? Because it's not something that's going to go away. As the research has indicated, everyone is susceptible, regardless of your personality, regardless of gender or your age. Um, Although I would imagine, you know, (laughs) older, more mature people probably experience this less. So how do we manage it? The first thing I would say, and, and this is kind of, uh, very, um, you know, very straightforward, palpable, is putting your phone away. You know, putting your phone on do not disturb mode. Um, you know, shutting off notifications. Notifications are dangerous, guys. You know, um, if you, you know, if you just sit, sit in a quiet room for an hour with your cell phone next to you, chances are you're going to get inundated with, you know. The New York Times notification, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, and they're not even telling you things that are pertinent to you. It's not like Twitter is telling you someone mentioned you. Twitter is telling you that you know there's a breaking news alert, or on Instagram, it's, t- it's not telling you that someone liked a photo. It's telling you that one of your friends went live. It's not even you know information. It's just they want your attention because if they have your attention in your eyes, that means that they you know have have money that. Um, you know, they have data that they can send to advertisers that X amount of people watch them and use them for X amount of hours. And, you know, that's their bottom line. So turn your notifications off, put your phone on do not disturb mode, especially if it's the weekend. You know, I don't know about you guys. If I'm watching a movie, right, or a TV show, I turn my phone off. I'm putting it in, you know, the other room. I'm not, I can't stand when people are, are literally, you know, watching a movie and they're texting while they watch the movie or they're browsing Instagram, just scrolling, um, you know, idly through the feed. Turn your phone off, put, uh, you know, put, put it into an undisturbed mode. That way you're not constantly comparing yourself to what your friends are doing on that Friday or Saturday night. And the other thing is ignorance is bliss, guys. You know, you don't need to know. I think... You know, and, and and we've talked about this. We'll continue to talk about it. But one of the the uh, basic human needs that social media has tapped into is our hunger for in, for more information, our hunger to learn, and, and for instant gratification, and and uh, you know as much stimuli as possible. But eventually, like you don't you don't need to know. You don't need to know what every one of your 600 classmates from college is doing on a Friday night or what you know all of your close friends are wearing when they go out. Ignorance is bliss. Just don't even think about it. And when you you know have that mindset, yeah, you might feel FOMO if you're exposed to the knowledge that things took place. But hey, if you're doing your own thing, if you're with your family, you know, um, you know, if it's your mom's birthday and you're having dinner with your family as opposed to going out with your friends, but you don't have your cell phone or you're not, you know, your notifications are off, that makes the chance that you'll be impacted by FOMO all the lesser. So kind of the takeaway there is it's it's a real phenomenon. There's a scientific basis to it. Um, and it's strongly correlated with social media addiction, but it's in your control to make sure that you minimize those, uh, you know, negative psychological symptoms of the fear of missing out. So it's the most widely consumed and addictive drug in the world it's not 
you know, it's not alcohol, which we talked about. Um, it's it's not, you know, cocaine or, or amphetamines. It's caffeine, guys. We drink more coffee than soda, tea, and juice combined. And caffeine is, you know, it's a drug. It's a stimulant. And I warned you, you know, with, with alcohol that, that it was dangerous. And I'm sure if you drink too much coffee, it can be dangerous. But I'm going to, you know, to... Uh, t- take a different spin on caffeine than I took in alcohol. I am all about caffeine. I'm all about coffee. I've been an avid coffee drinker since I can remember. You know, I drink my coffee pretty sweet, so I like dump a lot of sugar, a lot of milk and cream into it. So my friends actually kind of tease me that um, you know it, it's more like a milkshake than a coffee because it's like 40% um, you know cream. But at this point, guys, I think I'm at probably like two or three cups of coffee per day. I actually have a big old cup with me um, right now. And, and you know, whenever I record these podcasts, I have to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm energized, you know? And I think in a sense, I'm, I'm a little bit dependent on it. You know what I mean? I, if I ever need to get anything done, and I was this way in college too, I just put my head down, I chug, you know, large coffee from Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, uh, Starbucks is okay, but I'm, I'm I'm definitely Team Duncan. I put my music on and and I just kind of I buckle down and get it done. Um, the downside, you know, of this is my tolerance is incredibly high. So, you know, I need if I t- if, essentially if I have a cup of coffee at midnight, most people would be up all night. I fall right asleep. It really doesn't even do anything for me. I need like like I said, at least three or four cups to even be affected, um, to be in the you know in the positive. Um, on the positive side because my tolerance. So a lot of people actually will stop drinking caffeine, stop drinking coffee for a while. um, And the reasoning is, well, if I need that extra kick from the caffeine, um, you know, I, my tolerance will be really low and then I'll have a cup from Starbucks and I'll be wired. So I, I firm, I firmly believe that, that caffeine is, is 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 a positive resource that people can rely upon in their everyday life, and I'm going to go into the the research on it. But before I do, you know, I have to say, um, too much of anything can be a bad thing. And caffeine, and I alluded to this a moment ago, too much caffeine could bring about palpitations, right? Like your heart's beating out of your chest, um, anxiety, uh, chest pain. It can stage your stain your teeth. Um, it's pretty acidic, so it could lead to you know gastrointestinal reflux. Um, so, you know, there, there are certainly risks and all of this varies person to person. Some people, you know, can't drink coffee because it's too bitter and they don't like the taste or, or, you know, it affects them more strongly than others. Um, so too much of it certainly, you know, has, has its detriments, but coffee is actually, the research is, is overwhelmingly positive. It's actually excellent for you in the long, in the long term. Okay, and it's not just the caffeine. And I'm mainly going to talk about the caffeine, but coffee itself contains over a thousand different chemical compounds. You know, there's B vitamins. There's, believe it or not, guys, there's potassium, magnesium, those micronutrients I've been telling you about, and there's phytochemicals which have um, anti-inflammatory properties and contain antioxidants. So it's actually great for aging. I'm going to get there in a minute. Um, And all these components with the caffeine can do extraordinary things to the body. So. The first thing I want to touch on is is antioxidants. And essentially, people most people get more antioxidants from coffee than all the fruits and vegetables they eat um, combined. And if you don't know, antioxidants are the chemicals that can stop or limit damage to the body caused by free radicals, which contribute to the aging process. And you know, we're going to be talking a lot more about free radicals and aging in another episode. I'm planning to bring on um, you know someone in my life who's very knowledgeable on that, but. If you want to slow the aging process, absolutely drink more water, absolutely take care of your skin. You need the vitamin D from the sunlight. But believe it or not, coffee is excellent for that because it's so rich in antioxidants. In terms of you know other positive um, aspects of caffeine, everyone knows that caffeine improves your energy level, but it can actually make you smarter too. This this isn't you know <laughs> this isn't an exaggeration. After you drink coffee, the caffeine is absorbed into your bloodstream. From there, it's going to travel to your brain. Now, once caffeine's in your brain, guys, it blocks um, a neurotransmitter called adenosine. 
And when this happens, the other uh, neurotransmitters like norepinephrine um, and dopamine increase, which leads to a more enhanced, more efficient firing of your neurons. Okay, so lots of controlled studies have shown that coffee improves various aspects of, of brain function because of that impact. So it's it's going to improve your memory, your vigilance, your energy. We, we all know about the energy. It can improve your reaction time, um, your mood, and your general mental function. And this just isn't a short-term impact. A lot of people think, oh, you know, if I take coffee when I'm about to study, it'll give me energy and, you know, make me think um, more efficiently while I'm studying, but in the long term won't do anything. No. In the long term, it can absolutely um, you know, improve your brain function. Okay, uh, coffee can all can also help you burn fat. Um, most fat burning supplements contain some degree of caffeine, uh, and you know studies have shown that caffeine also boosts your uh, metabolic rate by anywhere from three to eleven percent. Um, I I take a couple of, of pre workout supplements before you know um, before I lift or before I run. And all of them could take caffeine. Now, the caffeine doesn't just give you energy for the workout, which is important, but it, it increases fat burning by um, as much as 10% in obese individuals and 29% in lean people. Okay, so definitely, you know, that's that's an important um, you know impact of caffeine to note as well. Uh, and generally speaking, um, caffeine improves your physical performance by stimulating the nervous system. So it's signaling to fat cells to break down body fat. So what does this mean? Um, if you, you know, if you're about to have a, uh, uh, you know, a heavy workout session, believe it or not, it might make sense to have a strong cup of coffee about a half hour before you head to the gym. Um, because it, you know, it does have the net positive impact on your list, uh, on your lift or on your run. You know, the research has also showed, I mentioned a moment ago uh, when I talked about how caffeine actually improves general brain function, uh, that it, it does so by improving the mood. Um, caffeine can actually make you happier. And it's really hard. I talked about correlation and causation. It's really hard to pinpoint if something can make, you know, make something happier because it's all, you know, you have a uh, hundred different um, body systems working in in tandem and when you introduce something to the body it, it's hard to tell if, if that on its own is causing bringing about a certain reaction um but you know i can only tell you what what the research says and i did mention longevity you know uh it there is research that suggests that coffee could help you live longer um and in two uh significant studies drinking coffee was associated with a 20 percent reduced risk of death in men and a 26% uh, reduced risk of death in women um, over the ages of 18 to 24. Again, more more impactful for women than men. Um, and specifically, if you're wondering, you know, how does coffee uh, increase longevity? Well, we mentioned the antioxidants um, and the impact on the aging process, but there's also reason to believe that coffee may lower your risk of diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, and certain types of cancer. So all this is to say that I don't know about you guys. When I was a kid, um, a lot of people kind of warned you against drinking coffee. I, I used to hear that it stunts your growth, or you know, it's addictive, or it's bad for your heart. Um, and some of that may be true. Okay. And by the way, I haven't even touched on withdrawal because that's a very real thing. You know, if, if if you have a couple cups of coffee every day and then you go a day without coffee, you get headaches, you get nausea. I've experienced it, and those of you listening out there who, um, you know, are frequent coffee drinkers have definitely experienced it as well. I would imagine, um, but it doesn't. It you know looks like the research out there suggests that that caffeine and coffee have net positive impacts on our physiology. All that in mind, you know. All that being said. I do, you know, want to encourage you to read up on this and, and you know, uh, stay up to date on the the research on, on nutrition because I'm sure you guys know, um, pretty much in the scientific community, there's it, it, it it's there's a dy dynamic consensus. You know, every every week, you know, folks will agree and disagree on something else. I mean, you see this a lot with dieting. Um, you know, one week it's carbs are you know the uh, the key to you know staying fit in one week is you need as much protein as you can, or you know cut back on fiber or paleo or keto, or whatever whatever it might might be. So right now um, there you know there is uh, a consensus 
that caffeine is um, is good for your health, but you know it might change, uh, and that's why I think it's important for for everyone to uh, you know to be um, you know up to date on that. I want to turn to politics, and we haven't we haven't talked about politics in a long time, actually. I think since maybe like since the first episode. Um, and I want to pose the question on a very basic level: Should you really care what's happening in Washington D.C. and and what is the bare minimum that people can do to you know be informed and to to be involved? I mean, in America for for decades. I mean, really since our inception, there's been a widespread apathy about politics. And on the one hand, you can argue that this is true of any democracy. I mean, what what separates a democracy from other forms of government is people have the chance, the choice to choose. The choice, the choice to choose. People have the opportunity to decide, you know, if they want to do anything or if they don't want to do anything at all. And you can choose to not give a shit. You know, we, I mean, look at, Look at voting. Voting is, is a great lens to this. America, out of every industrialized country, has, has one of the lowest rates of civic engagement. We trail almost all developed countries in voter turnout. You know, it's usually about 60% in presidential elections. I think we were at 55% in 2016 because folks didn't vote. And in midterm elections, which are the important ones where Congress is elected, we're at about 40%. So, you know, we, we have voter apathy. We, we, you know, we don't have people who are, are getting engaged. Um, although it, you know, it is it is on the rise, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I guess I, I you know, I, I want to kind of probe um, why that is, because as I said, you know, a moment ago, it's very much uh, to be expected in a democracy um, that people will just not engage. You know, it's it's. It's really a question of, of what's in it for me, the self-benefit principle, self-interest principle. Um, if people don't see the importance of voting, see how it can, it can impact them, um, you know, they're not motivated to do it. And certainly, I think the narrative needs to be, you know, what do you care about? What are your interests? What are your values? And get the information out there as to, you know, how the political system can help you, um, can help you get there. And I think that recently we've been trending in the you know in, in, in a good direction. I mean, it used to be you know that the adults in the you know forty to sixty demographic and the and the senior citizens were the ones that were extremely involved in the political process. You know, whereas the the folks that just got their right to vote, the eighteen to thirty two year olds, weren't so involved. I mean, but. That's really changed since the election of, of President Obama in 2008, energizing you know young people. Um, you know that that's really how we got elected. You had the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, although it wasn't successful. But you know during his primaries, getting millennials excited, and I think he had the highest number of small donations ever. Um, of course, right now you have Congressman Casio uh, Cortez, 29-year-old former bartender from the Bronx. She was elected with a grassroots campaign and mobilizing folks on uh, Twitter. Um, and you know, even look at look at uh, President Trump. Same kind of thing. I mean, people. Although I will say, with President Trump, um, his base is more blue collar, middle America. Whereas in the cases of Obama, Sanders, and Ocasio Cortez, it's about mobilizing young people. But you know, we are trending in, in in a good direction. In spite of this, though, in spite of this, most young people are still either unaware of what's happening in Washington D.C. on on a day to day basis, or they simply don't care. I mean, if you're if you're 17 years old, you know what do you or 18 years old, what do you care about? You care about you know validation of your friends, how many likes you get on Instagram, you know if someone's going to ask you to prom, um, getting into a good college, uh, you know um, having having lots lots of friends. If I didn't mention that, uh, looking really good on on so like where does you know where does um the long term um, sustainability of the automotive industry and switching to electric cars fit into this, you know, into your your pie chart of values. You know, where does the humanitarian crisis in Yemen or the situation in Israel and the Middle East where does where does that fit into this? Most people, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't affect them. There's there's a quote by um by uh, Dale Carnegie from uh, my favorite book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's something along the lines of, um, 
a tooth, you know, one person's toothache matters more to, to him or her than a thousand earthquakes in, in Africa or um, something, something along those lines. We, we care about what affects us. And, you know, let's be honest, America doesn't make it easy for you to get engaged. I mean, first of all, the information is not really out there for what people can do, you know, short, short of voting. Um, and then when we talk about voting, I mean, election day is not a national holiday, so you have to go after work. There's long lines on election day. In person, you know, is inconvenient for a lot of people. Um, you know, there's no same day registration for folks um, in a lot of states. There's no online voter registration in a lot of states. People have been disenfranchised in certain communities across the country, um, you know, where they're not allowed to vote. And there are ways, there are tangible ways to improve that. Um, and that's not, by the way, that's not even the focus of, of this segment. But if we did want to improve the, proting, the, the voting process, we could automatically register people to vote. We could give, you know, off on election day. We could have them, you know, rank candidates like a first past the, the post system instead of picking just one. We could even, you know, require that folks vote. I mean, instead of making it optional and, you know, th th this is another conversation, but in Australia, uh, Australia popularly has mandatory voting and their voter turnout, guys, is 94%. You know, 94% of Australians come out to vote. And if you don't vote, you're fined. So, you know, I think there's an, there's, arg there's certainly arguments on both sides as to whether or not we should implement a system like that. Because the other side of that is, well, if people are being forced to vote, that, that kind of runs contradictory to what it means to be a democratic system in the first place. You know what I mean? Like no vote is in a sense in a sense a vote. But even voting is not engagement. You know, I would argue that if someone votes in a presidential election every four years, and even if they vote in a congressional election every two years, they're still not, not necessarily engaged. Because engagement doesn't just mean, you know, casting a vote and then saying, well, you know, I uh, hope, uh, hope my candidate wins. Oh, you know, oh, he won? Okay, great. Then he's just automatically going to advocate for, you know, for all the issues I care about. That's not the way it works. You know, like you don't, you don't just, just, you know, hire someone at, at, at a company and hope that everything they said in their job interview comes to pass. You know, you have to, you have to check in with them. You have to, you know, make sure that, you know, they're, they're doing okay. Ask if they need support and you need to hold them accountable. Guys, you need to hold these people accountable because we're not holding our elected representatives accountable. We're voting for them and that's it. And then we're just, you know, crossing our fingers and hoping that, that it turns out okay. And I think you see in Congress, especially in, in the House of Representatives where you have, you know, two-year terms, what's happening is essentially a lot of these people are just constantly in campaign mode. You know they're not they're not even um you know they're not even really representing or serving the entire time they're just looking forward to the next campaign the next campaign. So there's there are ways that you need to engage. And I want to get back again to the initial question, why should you care and what's the bare minimum you can do? Well, let's focus on the second question first. The bare minimum you can do is just stay up to date on what's going on in the world. You know, you don't have to read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal every day, cover to cover. Just follow news accounts on Twitter or, you know, glimpse at the newspaper every morning in, in your house or, um, you know, if you're in the doctor's office, flip over in the newspaper just so you know what the heck is going on in the world. All right. And, and I'm telling you, this stuff impacts you more than you think. I mean, once once you graduate from college and you start getting paychecks, a lot of people realize that a, you know, a ton of money gets taken out towards federal and state taxes. It's amazing. You know, in college, if you look at the, pro the progression of you know, where people fall on the, on the spectrum in terms of conservative or, or, or liberal, in college, a lot of people are, are, are left-leaning. You know, oh, we should have um, improved public welfare systems and you know, lots of money towards education and the environment and, and technology. And all that sounds great, but then when you graduate and you start paying taxes, you realize, wow, I'm already paying, you know, 30, 40% to, um, you know, to these, these, um, these areas. 
and you know now we have to allocate more money right so this absolutely affects you i mean tax policy is something that almost no one knows about but anyone who has a job where you're being paid you know <laughs> we have to report your taxes this affects you so stay up to date on what's going on in the world the other thing is make sure you know who your local representatives are and it varies by state i mean in new york we have maybe over representation we have you know, the New York State Assembly, the New York State Senate. In the city, New York City, we also have the, the city council. We have um, neighborhood representatives as well. And a lot of the decisions are made at the local level, decisions that affect you. You know, and people are, are all up in arms about who the president is all the time. And justifiably so, the president's the leader of the party, he's a public figure, represents us, you know, in the media across the world. But ultimately, the president doesn't really even decide anything. You know, Congress has the power to make laws. Anything that the president wants to do, unless you know he uses exe executive order, which is rare, um, has to go through Congress. So absolutely, you know, interact with your congressman or, or congresswoman because, again, guys, accountability is key. Accountability, and there's, there's no accountability when you vote once every four years and then you know just just write it off. And you know, to go along with my first point, once you're educated on an issue. Definitely educate others. You know, post your opinions on a blog or on social media or, you know, speak to a friend or a coworker about it. Um, make sure you're disseminating information and, you know, make sure it's good information. No no fake news or, or propaganda. Um, certainly, I think that is, is a form of engagement that's easy and, you know, doesn't even involve you interacting with the government at all. You're interfacing with other people. And on that note, you know, don't be afraid to engage with people who disagree with you. And I think today... You know, it, it's particularly tricky because a lot of folks are allergic to opposing opinion. A lot of people, especially in college campuses, you have this homogenization of ideas. I, I like to call it the hive mind where, you know, picture a bunch of people are sitting around talking about affirmative action and everybody just agrees with one another. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Oh, yeah, no, that's absolutely. How is anyone going to learn? How is anyone going to sharpen their um, knowledge of an issue? How is anyone you know, going to become better. John Stuart Mill believed that you can only really know that your opinion is the correct one by hearing the other side and being able to dismiss it. Debate and promoting a healthy, thriving marketplace of ideas, that's central to a democracy and we don't have that. Not just as citizens, as politicians, you see the gridlock and you see the, the arguments ad hominem where you're not even arguing the facts, you're just arguing against the people. <clears throat> so I encourage Republicans, talk to Democrats, Democrats, talk to, talk to Republicans, independents, talk to libertarians and communitarians, you know, talk about these issues. And it's, it's so easy to have these dialogues with technology, you know, with with social media as much as, you know, I shit, I shit on it in other segments, it makes this form of communication easy. You know, email, emailing representatives, asking questions. That's something that, you know, people don't do, but, you know, emailing a congressional office or, you know, uh, a municipal office, a city office, a state office, and just asking questions about how you can learn about an issue, asking them, you know, how did my representative vote on this? Asking them, you know, where they can go either physically or online, ask questions because our representatives are obligated to answer them and nobody asks questions. Nobody asks questions. But it's not even just about communication. It's also about getting the information. And what's interesting about politics is how easy it is to get information. I spend so much of nervous habits shitting on technology and cell phones and the internet because it's poisoning our minds and giving us attention deficit disorder and making us crave instant gratification. You know all that. But one of the benefits that I like about the internet is essentially all of the information in the world is at our fingertips. You can learn about U.S. and Saudi Arabia relations or education policies or FEMA recovery efforts or the Department of Agriculture in a fraction of a second. I mean, do you realize how quickly the Google search engine works? You know, the controversy around illegal immigration and the Trump administration's effort to de deport migrants has been in the news for most of his term. If you type in right now in Google, illegal immigration, you, I mean, you can do it with me if you want, illegal immigration, the results, all, you know, 146 million of them should come up in 0.36 seconds. 
0.36 seconds. That is less than the time it takes you to blink. Years ago, if you wanted to learn about U.S. immigration policy, you'd have to go to the local library and spend hours combing through books and encyclopedias and leaflets and newspapers, pulling out pertinent information and consolidating it, right? Like essentially doing like a, a book report. It's a lot of work. I would understand years ago if people didn't want to engage and learn, but today the internet, Google, does all of that for you. We are living in the most intellectually privileged period in human history, and so many people don't take advantage of that. So do your research. You know, like I said before, you don't need to read long articles or books. It's as easy as subscribing to daily update feeds like, you know, the New York Times update or Washington Post update or, you know, the skim and getting emails or text messages just to keep you up to date. So to, to you know, answer the initial question of should we care about politics? Because we've already, we've already covered, you know, what can you do to get involved, to get engaged? Should you care what's happening every day? I'll admit, you know, some of the stuff that happens on the macro level you know, doesn't necessarily um, impact you, right? So like, it's not, it's not like you need to, to be able to, to say, you know, what was, what bills were pr proposed um, in the House subcommittees or everything that was discussed on the, the floor of the House or, you know, every meeting that the, the president had, all of that's not important. But you should have an idea of general trends in issues that affect you, like the environment, like taxes, like jobs, you know, the economy, you know, how, how is, how is the, the Dow Jones performing the, uh, you know, the, the 500 largest American companies? How's the dollar doing abroad? I mean, these are things again, that you, you go back to that pie chart of what young people care about, right? Like my friends, my, my clothes, you know, having a job, um, you know, looking good, social media, it may not affect you now, but I promise you, it will. And also, I haven't even mentioned, I haven't even mentioned that learning about this stuff makes you really intelligent and intelligence is attractive, right? Like we're about to, we're going to talk in, in, in a moment about small talk and how it's really awkward to make conversations with people, um, either strangers or extended family or friends. Usually you don't have a lot to talk about. Politics is a lot of fun to talk about. I'm not even talking about, you know, arguing, you know, for or against the president, like partisan politics. I'm talking about just like general politics, like arguing about, you know, the Federal Reserve and, um, you know, arguing about uh, the jobs report, like things like that, te technological innovation. That could be fun to talk about. So if you're someone out there who is you know, negotiating their values and thinking, eh, why do I need to know about, you know, what's happening in Washington, D.C. if all I care about is getting people to like me? Well, you know, you, you learn about all these things and you educate yourself. It gives you a lot to talk about and people will, <laughs> people will think you're smart. And I know that sounds kind of shitty, but hey, if you want to, you know, enter this dialogue with a superficial mindset, that's a superficial answer for you as to why you should care about what's happening in politics. And, uh, you know, just to reiterate again, to stay involved, just stay up to date, um, stay informed, um, you know, and ask questions of your representatives and the people in the city and state because you're not holding them accountable and, you know, really you're, you're, letting, you're letting them skate. So last segment I, I want to do, uh, you know, I, I, I know we're, we're coming up on the 50-minute mark, but I, I want to talk about uh, the importance of small talk and why it's the most important skill you can possibly have. I've said it before. I don't think that people today know how to make conversations anymore. It's the unintended consequence of cell phones. I mean, when, when all our communication with each other is calculated ahead of time and it's, um, you know, it's rehearsed, improvisational conversation can feel dangerous and it can feel uncomfortable. You know, it can give you a lot of social anxiety, you know, making chit chat with coworkers in the break room or, you know, talking to extended family at events or even talking on the phone. A lot of people, whenever I, I call them or, you know, I, I ask, hey, can I call you? They kind of get scared because that's a lot of pressure because I'm going to say something and then they have to respond and they have to do it quick because they don't have time to think about it or, you know, draft a text message or show their friends. They need an immediate response. That's called the conversation, guys. I talk, you talk. I talk, you talk. I, there's no, you know, planning. 
It's called improv. It's called real-time conversation. It can be nerve-wracking. What do you talk about? Do you ask questions? Do you listen? Do you lead? Do you follow? There's an art to it, though. You know, much like there's, you know, building a skill like playing the piano or, you know, being able to, to run a mile really fast, small, small talk is a skill. Conversationalism is a skill that people can build. And I firmly believe that it's one of the most important skills that you can have because it's versatile. You know, you can use it anywhere with anyone in any setting. And it's funny because we learn in school. I should get, get, my, get my caffeine and <laughs> my coffee in there, guys, so I can optimally uh, process this information. It's so funny. In school, we learn about earth science and astronomy and calculus, but there's no class for things that actually matter, like how to make small talk. And I'm not even talking about meeting with employers at a forum because obviously there's a template for that. You know, like, like literally you walk around with a piece of paper and a clipboard that tells you what to ask. But I'm talking about meeting new people either at a social event or a professional business event. I mean, small talk is important for building personal connections. It's important for, for networking um, professionally. And the best way to handle small talk is remember what's in your control. You can't control how others will react. You can't control you know, if others are going to initiate or ask questions. You can only control what your own actions are. So you need to take the onus on yourself. Do not wait for the other person to lead. You yourself have to lead. You know, if you walk into a an admitted students event, let's say you applied to college or grad school, you shouldn't just like stand there ex- waiting for people to come up to you. I mean, who are you? Who are you? You know, to be expecting that of other people, you should be approaching other people, saying, you know, my name is is um is Patrick, uh, and you know I'm from from uh, you know Wisconsin. What's your name? Or you know, if you're same situation, if you're uh, at a singles event or a college reunion, wh- whatever it is, it's in your control to approach other people. And not only does it make it less awkward, but it also exudes confidence to be able to to take those actions on your own. And by assuming the burden of the conversation, it takes a lot of pressure off the other person. It's a relief. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm in one of these environments, if I'm at Admitted Students Day or a, a you know, singles mixer or a professional event, whatever, and someone comes up to me, I'm immediately like, whew, like, you know, <laughs> thank God I didn't have to do that. It's, and it almost makes you like the other person more. And we talked about this in episode six when we talked about um, conversation and, and talking to strangers. Uh, when someone comes up to you, you immediately you know, psychologically, you you have a higher opinion of them because they've put themselves out there, they've been vulnerable, and they've initiated with a conversation with you, risking rejection. Because the other person, if you approach them, could walk away. The other person could say, ha, get lost. They, they're not going to because, you know, we live in a polite society, but they could. And so immediately, the other person's going to have a positive opinion of you. So you, as I said, you're assuming the burden of the conversation. You need to know what to say. And the key uh, that someone told me once is to focus on location and occasion. So if you if you meet someone, you can always ask them where they're from, no matter what the context is. That's just it's always a safe a safe thing to say. You know, wh- where are you from? Where did you grow up? Are you from around here? Location. And then there's occasion. You can ask them what brings them to whatever the setting is. If you're at a wedding, you know, how do you bring you know how do you know the bride or the groom? If you're at a networking event, you know, what's your connection to this event? So location and occasion are, are really good uh, fallbacks if you're really not sure what to say. Um, a lot of people like to say, what do you do? Uh, but you have to understand, you know, they might be a stay-at-home parent. They might be between jobs. So a, a better question, which will also facilitate better dialogue, is what's keeping you busy these days? Because if you say, what do you do? And they say, you know, I, I'm a hedge fund manager. There's not a lot you can say that's going to Lead a good dialogue. You know, oh, I'm, I'm managed head for a hedge fund. Oh, that's cool. Do you like it? Yeah. Oh, right. Like that's not a stimulating conversation. When you say what's keeping you busy these days, or even like what do you do for fun, that opens up a ton of conversations to, uh, of topics to converse about. Right? They they could be talking. They could start talking about you know how they recently took up cooking or um, you know snowboarding or. Uh, I don't know, amateur photography. Um, and those are more exciting things to talk about than, you know, hedge fund managing or, or whatever, finance. 
And again, it's not awkward in that scenario because maybe the person's unemployed or a stay-at-home mom and they don't have a job. So rather than saying, what do you do? Ask what's keeping you busy these days. And I mean, this is just basic. Don't give one word answers. You know, definitely try to move the conversation forward. So if someone says like, how are you? Um, you know, you, you really don't want to say fine. How are you? Because then the conversation becomes circular. Hey, how's it going? Good. How's it going? Good. You're right back where you started. You have to look at a conversation like, um, you know, a straight line or a, a, I guess a ladder or staircase. You want to always be moving forward onto something else. You know, it's almost like when you're learning a foreign language and you learn how to say, hello, how are you? Um, and then you learn how to say like, I'm good. And then you contribute like, oh, I'm good. Like, what did you do this weekend? I did this. I did that. Um, you know, you want to have a few things that you're prepared to talk about. Um, and this is this is good advice, especially for for folks out there that work in an office, because it's you know usually you you walk into work on a Monday and you see your coworkers from the previous weekend, and it's usually a little awkward. It's like, hey, like how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You want to almost like walk in. I know this is going to sound a little bit like too calculated, but you want to kind of like walk in prepared with a couple of of items. Like, what did you do over the weekend? Like, let's say you finally watched a new show on Netflix, or or you saw a friend who is coming from out of town, or you know you were on vacation in the Poconos or or, or whatever. Just have like a couple of things that you might want to talk about um, just because, you know, you take the onus off the other person certainly um, and you make the whole interaction less awkward, right? Because those interactions, guys, unless you're speeding from like one spot to another, how are you? Good, good. I can't really talk. I got to go. Those interactions are awkward, right? And, and I have to distinguish um, if anyone out there listens to Curb Your Enthusiasm, there's there's two categories of interactions in in a workplace. There's there's the the quick casual like what's up? I'm good. You good? We're good. And then there's the stop and chat. And the stop and chat is 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 a term that's actually coined by Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm. The stop and chat is what I'm talking about. That's like literally where, you know, you're in an office and, you know, you're waiting for the coffee machine and someone's standing next to you and you actually have to have a real conversation. So in certain settings, the how are you good? How are you? That might work, but in you know, if you're doing a stop and chat, definitely you want to have a couple things that you're prepared to talk about. And a lot of this, by the way, also uh, applies. I know we're talking about in-person small talk, but also applies to like virtual small talk. If you're like you know meetings or if you're texting someone or you're on like a dating app, I can't stand when I see friends um, texting girls or, or texting guys, and the conversation is literally, "Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good." Or even, how was your day? It was good. How was your day? It was good. It was fine. It was okay. Like, how do you get to know someone? Right? Like, how do you get to know someone if that's all you're, you're saying? Like, ask more creative questions, guys. Or, you know, um, disclose more interesting information. And that's both sides. I'm not just faulting my friends. That's the other people too. Because if someone says, how are you good? Like, you know, you could say something about yourself too. And we're going to do, I'm going to preview in, in a few minutes when we talk about next week, we're going to talk all about conversations on dates, um, on first dates and what kind of questions you can ask. But again, important to uh, move the conversation going, you know, visualize like a stair staircase or ladder so you're not just stagnating. Um, and along those lines, always disclose something about yourself so the other person will feel comfortable disclosing. So, you know, if you say, I'm really excited to go cycling this summer, the person might respond like, oh, I love cycling. I, you know, I've always wanted to do that or I did that a few weeks ago. Um, so you really help to uh, cultivate that comfort level. And by saying something about yourself, you're also not making it an interrogation because those interactions can be tough as well. If, you know, you meet someone and the conversation's like, hey, like, how was your weekend? Oh, it was great. You know, I, I was with my parents. And it's like, oh, like, what'd you do with your parents? Like, oh, how long were you there? What time did you get back? Oh, like, what, you know, what would you eat for dinner? Like, how's your mom? How's your dad? How's your... Like, that could be a little weird. So you really have to walk that fine line of asking questions and disclosing information. Otherwise, it just seems like very one-sided. Um, in a group of people, guys, it's important to assume the burden of conversation. Don't wait for someone else to do that. Again, th this has to do with what I said a moment ago about, um, you know, you can only control yourself. You can't control anyone else. Instead of waiting for someone else to speak up, 
just speak up. And and again, people are going to have a positive opinion of you because you're the one to break that silence. Um, and then, you know, try to include someone else. In every group, there's someone that's extroverted, someone that's a little shy or introverted. Toss them the conversation ball. You know, if and I, I do this a lot. I'm sure a lot of my listeners can, can relate. You know, if you see someone that really hasn't contributed in a group, just kind of, you know, throw them a bone. Hey, Mike, didn't you just start your own business? How's that going? Hey, uh, hey, Jack, like, you know, how's your girlfriend? I haven't seen her in a while. You know, uh, hey, Mark, um, you know, uh, I heard you got that promotion, man. Like, congrats. Try to, like, involve people and be that person that is bringing people together. And I think that, you know, that's an important um, important attribute to have and people will respond to that well. And let's say you're absolutely struggling in the conversation. You used location and occasion and you're not getting anywhere. You disclosed and the other person's, you know, not really saying much. Um, First of all, if someone's giving one-word answers, maybe they don't want to talk to you. You know, you can politely exit the conversation. Give yourself a pat on the back for trying. Not everyone's willing to be conversational, but there is an acronym that I found pretty effective. Um, if you, if you know, if you're really running out of things to say, or you know, we we might uh, revisit this when we talk about um, uh, you know dating. But uh, form is a good acronym. Family, occupation, recreation and motivation um family you know so ask them you know where uh you know where they're from um you know what 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 their childhood was like how many siblings they have occupation again like what do you do for fun what's keeping you busy recreation um i guess that would be like more hobbies and then motivation like what what drives you in life so you know remember that um that uh that saying as well um and lastly last 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 thing on small talk if you need to exit a conversation this is one of the hardest things if you go to a mixer or you go to a uh you know a business event um i guess this wouldn't be true on a date but if you need to exit a conversation that's always kind of tricky um usually you know you want to there's two ways to do it the first way you can do it is by using your surroundings to kind of sneak out. So if you're at like an event with food, you could kind of like tap them on the shoulder and say, I'm just going to grab some food or I'm just going to grab a drink. Um, I'll catch up with you later. Or, you know, say you have to use the restroom. If you're going to do that though, make sure you actually grab food or use the restroom. It'll be pretty awkward if you say like, you say to someone, oh, I'm going to go get a bite to eat. And then you walk away, <laughs> you start talking to someone else. That doesn't look good. The other thing you can do is wave the white flag which basically means you're giving them advanced warning that you have to leave ahead of time. So let's say you know you and I are having an exciting conversation about um, your uh, your career in medicine, and I I you know everything's going great. I'm gonna wave the white flag. I'm just gonna say like, hey, one more question for you. Then I gotta get out of here. Then I gotta run. Um, you know, what's what's the you know what's the most challenging aspect of being a doctor? And by doing that, you give them advance notice that you're going to take off, and you don't feel as lousy when you when you know when you when you then say like, "Oh, it was great talking to you." So, those are important strategies to keep in mind. Again, small talk I think is is really it's a skill, and we just scratched the surface here. It's a skill that that you that you can learn absolutely, um, and a lot of people struggle. You know, a lot of people struggle with small talk, but um, definitely you know, and something that. I think could alleviate your social anxiety because all of us have social anxiety. And again, I, I want to reiterate, nowadays with technology, conversation feels almost foreign. It feels alien. So in a sense, we have to relearn how to communicate um, and how to do it in a seamless and you know fun fashion. So it's been a, a, a very packed um you know, episode I, for the 10th one, I, I tried to squeeze in the fourth segment there. I know we're a little bit over on time. Um, just to kind of reiterate uh, what we, you know, everything we we, uh, we discussed today, uh, fear of missing out, um, FOMO is something that's really inescapable in the world we live in today. Um, try to, you know, limit the exposure you have. Remember, it, ignorance is bliss. Uh, so you're not constantly, you know, looking at your your life and feeling inadequate compared to those real-time updates from your friends on Snapchat and Instagram. Um, caffeine is a, uh, in the long term, 
uh, an incredibly physically and cognitively and, and mentally beneficial, um, you know, uh, supplement that you should be taking if you can, you know, if, if you can handle it. Um, definitely important to uh, stay up to date uh, in in politics. Remember that these things do affect you, um, and you know, engage even if it's just you know having a conversation with someone who disagrees with you, who feels differently. Uh, and finally, it's important um, with small talk to take the onus on yourself to initiate the conversation and move the conversation forward. Don't be circular with the "How are you? I'm fine. How are you?" Um, and you know, really, uh, really have those enriching conversations. Next week, we're going to be returning to the wonderful world of dating, as I alluded to a moment ago. What are the best first date ideas? And what conversations should you be having on date one? So we'll talk about that. Um, technology and privacy, this is going to be a really fun conversation. How worried should you be about the amount of information and data that Google, Apple, and Facebook have on you at this very moment? And finally, dreams. Dreams, dreams, dreams. How to remember your dreams more easily and how to interpret what they really mean. So the 10th episode, guys, it's been uh, it's been an incredible run so far here on Nervous Habits Podcast. Um, really excited to keep this thing going uh, and, you know, continue to uh, continue to go strong on the pod. Um, keep those emails coming, nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com, um, and on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and stay nervous. Take care.